Joining us now on the program is Michael Salem, is a leading member since 1988 of the National Organization of Parents of Murdered Children. And Michael's here to talk a little bit about uh, some subjects of interest, I think, to a college audience and to all of us uh, in general. Michael, uh, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Good day in California. I was sent this uh, this press release by Eileen Proctor. Eileen's been great sending us a lot of wonderful uh, guests on this program and about your organization and its interest in, uh, first of all, information leading to this case, 17-year-old case involving uh, Christopher O'Connor. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, uh, the Christopher O'Connor case. Uh, Christopher uh, works for us, and um, at the age of 22, he went into uh, this nightclub, which was a very um, popular nightclub in Queens, New York, in, in April 11th of 1987, where two bands were playing, one Motorhead uh, and another Savage Grace, which is no longer in existence. I think it was a California-based band. What happened was uh, he was um, <clears throat> tossed out by the bouncers and beaten up, and he went to a pay telephone and dialed 911 and stayed on the phone for four minutes and so many seconds. And uh, he tried to uh, have the 911 operator send him uh, an ambulance. And he called for an ambulance. He says, my eye is gushing blood. I'm, I'm being killed, this type of thing. Um, they did send somebody, but uh, they didn't look for him. Uh, they looked for a female, and he has a very baritonish voice. So uh -huh. I mean, he couldn't. Uh, uh, a very strange thing. Anyway, the bouncers pulled him back in after the call, beat him up, killed him. And the next morning, his body was found by the janitor. The club was organized crime connected, like most clubs in New York are. I don't know about California. Uh, bouncers that work there are uh, usually um, very strange people on steroids or drugs of some type, and they enjoy beating on people. And the whole idea is that's the whole job. There is no governance. Uh, there was no governance on what kind of uh, people could be uh, employed. And therefore, uh, this situation happened. And I think even uh, we had a witness come forward on a talk radio show many years ago. Uh, they indicated that the owner of the club, and of course, I can't say that he did this, Joseph Anthony Guarino, G-U-A-R-I-N-O, was one of the murderers. But I can't say he was, because we never had a case. We never had anything, because a politically powerful councilman, Morton Poffman, P-O-V-M-A-N, who was head of the, one of the heads in the uh, city council of New York, became their defense attorney on a civil case and made the criminal case go away. There must have been, I assume, then a civil case against the owners of the, of the nightclub. Well, money wasn't a thought here. Uh, this was just to find out the truth of what happened because we never had a criminal case because the medical examiner, also uh, allegedly uh, a person of not very uh, good qualities, became uh, involved in such a way that she said that, oh, he died of drinking, not even noticing any marks on his body, beatings, bleedings, or anything else. With the 911 tape, I mean, how could you mistake it? Now the family hired three different medical examiners, private one including the famous Dr. Michael Baden, who said, yes, of course, the drinking had something to do with him not coming back after a beating, but uh, he was beaten so much because of his drinking in combination of the beating, he probably died of that situation. But right. there were ligature marks on his throat, which meant he was probably strangled or some 
some like a cord was put around his throat. So all these strange things happen. Now these are politically powerful people that are organized crime connected to the uh, city council's office, connected to the district attorney's office of Queens, who was who were mobbed up to this day. Um, also, we had um, the police involved here on the cover-up, the 110th precinct, and several other precincts, and we had the medical examiner's office. So I take it, Michael, that 17 years later, that uh, basically that this case remains just an unopened matter. Unopened matter, but uh, we have new things coming up. We have two witnesses that came forward, one from California, by the way. Uh, so there might be a witness out there in California, and then one from locally here. One is a battered wife and one is a battered um, girlfriend. And they both said that their uh, boyfriends and husbands killed somebody uh, and, uh, in New York in a club, and they mentioned the name, and one of the names is the same name as the club, Lamore East, and Lamore is in New York, and they mentioned that uh, they were uh, they murdered somebody there. So, so what becomes of that when people come forward to say that? Has there been any legal follow-up? Well, I gave it to the FBI, and so far they are not acting too uh, feverishly on the case. I think that it, the problem is here that if something is uh, discovered in Christopher's murder, it will involve at least 100 people that should go to jail and a conspiracy to cover up this murder because the people that covered it up are people, you know, that are always looking for payoffs here and there, maybe not financial, but will favor here and there. So, you know, this is a terrible, terrible travesty of justice. Well, through parents of murdered children, you know, I, I always try to help other people in similar circumstances. We had quite a few cases of uh, bouncers and bars and things like that, and many things happen all over the country like that, especially well, yeah. in California, which is double the size of New York. I well, imagine you have double the problem. I'm, I'm sure we do have a problem, and I think this is probably a lesson for people uh, in, our, in our college listening audience, people who may go out and wish to enjoy clubs and have a great time, but you have to be careful if you're intoxicated in a rowdy situation of course you're dealing with people whose job it is to be bouncers it could uh, bad things could happen we have a one hundred thousand dollar reward for the arrest and conviction of anybody who can give us information and help put these people in jail uh... for committing the murder of christopher o'connor we wish you the best on that michael uh, could you tell us a bit before you go about the national organization of parents of murdered children the national organization of parents of murdered children is an organization which we have about 500 chapters all over the country and um, many contact people. Um, I guess we have over 150,000 members. And we try to help out whatever situations arise when uh, the justice system has to enter a case where there is a homicide. And we help them out with the working with the court system and working with the lawyers and with the DAs and with the judges and trying to get the victim the proper justice and getting the the uh, per perpetrator, putting them in jail for the time that they deserve to be in, in jail and trying not to let them go out on a parole or anything like that or get a probation. And if they want to see the Parents of Murdered Children website, is it's on our site, which is www.helpchristopher.com. That's H-E-L-P-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R.com. Helpchristopher.com. Go to the link, 
Parents of Murdered Children, and you can see everything else. And if they want to read about Christopher's story, it's right on there also. All right. And how is it you came to be associated with the, uh, the POMC? Oh, well, they, well, first of all, my cousin was murdered in San Francisco in 1978, Harvey Milk. He was murdered with Mayor Moscone. And at that time, uh, for the family, I wanted to find an organization. And at that time, Parents of Murdered Children was being formed, but I didn't know anything about it. Harvey's murder only got a couple of years, you see. Yeah, and Dan Christopher, White, famous case out here in California. Yeah. In 1988, it was fully formed, and it was formed by, before then. But in 1988, they got in touch with me. I became a member. I became the national spokesperson at that time, also the head of fundraising. But after two or three years, it was too much for me to do all these things. So I said, let me help individual people in their individual situations, and that's what I do. Yeah. Specializing in, in the, the bar situation where there's bouncers. Michael Salem, thank you very much for informing us about this group, something I had not previously known about, and uh, hopefully there'll be a break in the case and justice yeah, can... Tell them to find the, the murder. We want to give away that money. Uh, helpchristopher.com, H-E-L-P-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R.com. $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who killed Christopher O'Connor. Thanks again, Michael Salem. Thank you very much, Doug. All righty. All right, uh, let us uh, see if we can lighten the mood a little bit uh, to finish off our show today. Uh, a little bit of practical information should be, I think, put in front of you. Jeff Shepper in MoneyCentral.com points out there's a popular misconception in the U.S. about the tax code. Many students think they don't have to pay taxes. Wrong! If you earn more than $4,750 a year and your parents claim you as a dependent on their returns, checking the exempt box on your W-4 won't save you. You owe taxes. On a more positive note, many parents wrongly believe that they can't claim a working child as a dependent. If you provide more than half of your child's support, he or she qualifies as your dependent, even if the kid makes millions as a teenage fashion model. You can claim him or her so long as you pay his or her bills. He's been in hot water lately, but the blunderbuss of the right is back. Rush Limbaugh's once again spouting off on the clear channel radio stations of America. As Rush resumes his verbal emissions, we attempt to give them a smog check. Joining the program is Tiffany Tyler, whose job description lists her as, quote, fact checker, unquote, for Mr. Rush Limbaugh. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Ms. Tyler. I hope I can clear up some of your liberal notions. Well, are you sure you're liberal? This is college radio, right? Yes. Well, then. Well, we could be part of Bob Jones University. But you're not. You're one of those UC schools. Yes, we're UC Davis, but we're just independent thinkers here, Miss Tyler. <laughs> oh, that's what they all say. Then they go and they smoke their pipes, and they put on their black, ugly cardigans, drive their Volvos, and go around boycotting everything. You know, what well, we've had on Tom McClintock... What's what's that noise? Uh, rip and winkle, rise and shine. Not pills, not pills. Oh, that's just one of my associate fact checkers, and I'm not talking about Al Franken on your show. Okay. Um, how often does Rush use your services? Seldom does a show go by without Rush needing me to check on how many draft dodgers are running for office as Democrats, or what tax and spend liberal is running down the president. 
Well, now, speaking of draft dodging... I'm not talking about Franken or his book. So you said. Well, I'm not kidding. Well, surely you know Russia's reputation. He never bothers to, to look up facts. His high school teacher noted it and gave him poor grades. At least he, that's what he told Time magazine. Look, if Rush says that there are more Indians in America now than in 1492, it's because we checked our sources. You did? Yes, of course. Reader's Digest and People magazine. Oh, both. And I don't mean the condensed books. I mean the archives of the magazines. Also the best of Ripley's Believe It or Not. So when Rush says, there's no evidence that nicotine's addictive, someone actually looked that up. Absolutely. And you stand by this? There's a lot of research out there that says this. That nicotine's not addictive. Believe it or not. Well, I'd say not. It's controversial. A subject that should be reserved for, say, um, a doctor, maybe? Well, actually, I am a doctor. Oh, you are? Yes. And I'd say that Rush has more than one misunderstanding about what are addicting substances. Look, Rush had a problem. He admitted it. Hasn't the man suffered enough? I'm not convinced he suffered at all. Well, he has. The man was off the airways for weeks. When a judge in Palm Beach County had a narcotics problem, he wasn't criminally charged. So? Other people have problems, too. Well, I'm just wondering how he bought 10,000 pills over 90 days. Let's talk fact-checking, shall we? Okay, let's. A hundred pills a day. Is that an accurate fact? No. It's not. No, it is not. Well, what would be more accurate? Ten. That was all a misunderstanding. Ten pills total. Look, that, that is all I'm going to say. Ask me a better question or this is over. Fine. Who decided to call it the EIB network? I think it was Rush. You're not sure? I'll have to get back to you, but I have to go now. Well, Tiffany Tyler, thank you so much for talking with us. Ta-ta. That is it for today's program. In the weeks to come, we should announce that we're hoping to bring on Michael Rupert to, to talk about um, 9-11, what happened before, what's happened since, Robert K. Tannenbaum, the noted author whose uh, crime novels appear in, uh, well, in, in your newsstands and uh, supermarkets all across the country. He's written a number of bestsellers. We will also be addressing the issue of sex as a follow-up on our Valentine's Day program. Our thanks to Gary Chu, our special media correspondent, Mr. Michael Salem, uh, and, of course, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes V and Tiffany Tyler. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and you should stay tuned for Todd, whose program will follow shortly. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 p.m.